The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Wednesday night, July 13th, as we record this episode of the podcast. The Chicago White Sox just wrapped up their series in Cleveland. Some of you, I hope you're listening to this episode while driving or flying up to Minneapolis for this weekend, as we'll see many of you for our annual road trip that we co-host with our friends from the 108. For those not making the trek, we'll preview the crucial series in Minneapolis this weekend while playing a new game, a revolving door of topics we'll chat about. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And Jim, the White Sox did not start this series very well in Cleveland. They lost game one, eight to four, mostly because I think that game got away for a mistake by Tony Russa with Lance Lynn overextending him. Then Shane Bieber dominated the White Sox. What's new? But the White Sox won game three, seven to nothing. Thanks to three homers and outstanding pitching from Dylan Cease. And they win the fourth game 2-1 to one, thanks to an outstanding pitching performance from Lucas Giolito. And I think that's a good place to start when the White Sox needed really good performances on the mound. Dylan Cease and Lucas Giolito delivered this week. Yes, and, and Cease did it, and I think, in the most extreme version of himself with uh, basically a whole ton of sliders and a whole bunch of ugly swings on balls in the dirt and and basically the the fastball was a setup pitch for the slider and then we saw Giolito go about his business in a different way um it was almost like uh Evan Marshall a little bit Ryan we have like three pitches you don't know what order they're going to come in uh he, he mixed them up pretty much uh you know third 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 when it comes to his fastball change up and slider got uh it wasn't so much about getting whiffs or getting strikeouts, getting deep in counts. It was more about just you know keeping him off balance, and that did the job of just getting pretty weak contact. He got some hard hit balls, but I think only four of them, and, and none of them over, uh, or only uh, one of them uh, got to 101 miles per hour. So nothing was really smoked off him. 
And I think when you have a lineup like this, uh, you know, the Guardians are pretty good at putting the ball in play and can give uh, pitchers who try to nibble uh, some fits when it comes to just, you know, foul balls and extending at bats. Like, I think Giolito tried to take the shortest distance between uh, the first inning and the sixth, and I think he was successful in that regard. Yeah, he did get to the seventh inning, and I think Toronto La Russa, to give him credit, did make the right decision when Giolito walked the batter to have runners on first and second in the seventh inning with just one out. And Larusa went to the bullpen to get Ronaldo Lopez. I think there's a pretty significant difference, especially velocity-wise, because Giolito was around like 91 to 94 wide range with his fastball velocity. And when you bring in Ronaldo Lopez, suddenly Cleveland's hitters looking for changeup, looking for soft stuff. They're getting really hard velocities coming at them with Ronaldo Lopez. And Lopez got out of that inning. Josh Harrison had a roller coaster defensively that inning, making, mm-hmm. I thought, two good plays, one bad play that resulted in an unearned run. And back to that hard stuff, Kendall Graveman did a great job in the eighth inning. And Liam Hendricks also had a scoreless ninth inning. Both Graveman and Hendricks had two strikeouts apiece. Uh, as the White Sox pitching-wise did really well. But in this game, and you wrote it in your column, Jim, for Wednesday, with the White Sox facing Aaron Savali. Now, Savali, when you look at his season ERA, is not good. It's above six. But since he has came off the injured list, his last five starts, it's been below four. It's actually been the low threes for his ERA. He's pitching better. Now, Savali didn't stay long in the game. He only lasted an inning because of injury. And I forgot, who was the left-handed reliever that came in for Cleveland? Uh, Hedges. Hedges. So the White Sox against Hedges in his one and two-thirds innings of work had three hits. They scored both their runs in the game. They walked twice, and they only had one strikeout. So five base runners in an inning and two-thirds against Hedges. And everyone else out of the Cleveland bullpen – that's right-handed. The White Sox, including Savali, only had five base hits. They did not score. They did not walk. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they struck out eight times. So, thankfully, Cleveland had to go to a left-handed reliever in that game because of injury. And they were just running out of guys in the bullpen because the White Sox did not muster much offense against anyone that was throwing the baseball right-handed. But at least the White Sox capitalize on that front, Jim, offensively. But this is something of a theme that you're getting at because White Sox fans, all right, hey, two bad games against Cleveland. They won the next two. Let's have a good weekend in Minneapolis and get get ourselves back in this race and, you know, gain some games on Minnesota. But it is this theme of are these good wins the White Sox had? Is this a good win to split the series with Cleveland, or are there still red alerts, red flags to suggest, no, this is not a sustainable way of winning for the White Sox that will get them back into postseason contention? I think there are two ways to look at it, and I think if you're looking at it game to game, and we know that Tony La Russa talks about how every game determines his mood for the day and how seriously he takes the individual outcomes— and he says, you know, there ain't no bad win. And that is true. Like, you know, anytime you come out, uh, you know, better in the standings than you were uh, when you entered the day, sure, that's that's positive. But I think the reason why we keep seeing the White Sox, you know, fail to turn corners or fail to have a winning streak of any, you know, meaningful length 
is that all these wins, you know, th there's nothing sustainable about the way they've won like their last several games. Um, you know, you had Dylan Cease, you know, that the, the 7-0 game, that was Dylan Cease looking great, but that, that was also Connor Pilkington, who White Sox fans know is a third-round draft pick, but also like a lefty who's been up and down this year, emergency starter, you know, making a spot start in, in the back end of a doubleheader that, you know, Cleveland already secured one win in. So they're not taking that game as seriously, and Pilkington, somebody they should hit, and they did. Uh, you know, the game before that, Robbie Grossman commits his first error in 440 games, and that keeps an inning alive open for the White Sox to break a tie. Uh, you had uh, Johnny Cueto shutting down the Tigers, who are the worst offense in baseball. And then, you know, he was facing a guy making his second career start and wasn't anywhere close to the Tigers' original rotation plans. So it's like every time they win, it's usually like, you know, a starter's down or, uh, you know, Injuries have ravaged the other team, or it's like a bullpen game. It, it's just something they're, they're not beating any team's regular starters. I, I think the Twins game where they came back five different times, like that's the only time they they, they have uh, knocked off a starter who was part of like a team's one through five plans. That was Joe Ryan, and that was a good win. Good performance against him, good performance the rest of the game. But all these other wins as of late are all just, you know, well, they squeaked by or they had this or uh, this guy had to fill in. And, you know, that's why I was hoping to see Savali you know, last longer. One, because he's got the six plus ERA, but also just because he's indicative of like a pedestrian righty who, but like pedestrian, but also, you know, counted on to start games for a team with uh, at least some plans of contending. So he was like a good litmus test, I thought, for just how effective the White Sox offense can be against an ordinary righty. And fortunately, they got a, uh, a wide array of righties, and so they weren't able to settle in and see a guy multiple times through. So it wasn't all that instructive, except that, you know, the front end of the Cleveland bullpen also shut the White Sox down, which doesn't inspire a whole lot of confidence. Yeah, it it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, back to Lucas Giolito real quick. It wasn't that long ago we were really concerned about Giolito. Because he had a really rough five-game stretch where he his ERA was above seven during that stretch. He looked bad. But now Giolito seems to be getting back into rhythm here. And he's helping out his season ERA. I believe this will be his last start before the All-Star break. So Lucas Giolito now has a an extended break. And maybe it lines up for him to start the first game against Cleveland because he does have career success against the Guardians. And maybe it's Lucas Giolito starting the first game after the All-Star break at home against the Guardians for the White Sox to hopefully ramp up some momentum going into the post-All-Star break for the White Sox. How are you feeling about Giolito, especially in the last three starts? I think he's fine. I think he's still short of his Cy Young finalist form, but he's mm -hmm. better. Like, you know, the way I'd arrange the rotation now is just Cease number one, Cueto number two, Giolito three, Lynn, you know, maybe Kopech four, Lynn five. So, you know, Giolito as a third starter right now is fine with the way Cueto is throwing. So, uh, the thing I like seeing from him today was that he was back to throwing his change up with a little bit more um, confidence, you know, whether it's confidence or whether just locating better and, and, and that begets confidence. Uh, the location on his change up to righties was a lot better, you know, a lot lower in the zone, you know, just kind of uh, uh, you know, pulling the string on him before we just saw the change ups hanging up, hanging up inner half, uh, getting smacked around, you know, pulled with authority to, uh, you know, left field and, and, you know, line drives and fly balls leaving the park. And this time his, his changeup, 
you're really looking at the pitch map, there's only one that counts as a mistake. And, you know, given you know how he throws his change up against righties, especially righties who have never seen him before, uh, sometimes, you know, those change-ups are maybe not on purpose, but also not necessarily mistakes if they're on the right count. So that pitch came back to him. So I think if he has that going for him, then I think he's a lot more stable. Uh, if, if the slider can be his third pitch or his like 2B pitch with the changeup being 2A, then I think that's the that's the guy who can go six innings and you're not like sweating it once he gets to 75 pitches. 90 pitches, maybe, because that usually correlates with your know, actual fatigue versus you know pure third time through, command getting a little bit worse and hitters just knowing everything they're looking for. Well, the White Sox are now 43 and 45 on the season. They're still in third place. They're a half game back of Cleveland. So again, Cleveland lost 6-7 last week on the road against Detroit and Kansas City. We were hoping that if the White Sox could win this series against Cleveland, they could leapfrog them, get into second place. But no, both teams playing to a stalemate, so the White Sox are still in third place. They're a half game back of Cleveland. Minnesota walked off the Milwaukee Brewers earlier on Wednesday. So the White Sox are still five games back of the Minnesota Twins. They're three and a half games back of the wild card. And in the last 10 games for the White Sox, they're five and five. So it's like they're still stuck in neutral. It's Mm -hmm. it's a weird pattern here, Jim, where we should be excited that they've won the last two games. But we were also excited on Monday with the way that the White Sox beat up the Detroit Tigers and then they won a tough game on Sunday, and then they laid an egg, and then they got dominated by Shane Beaver. They lost, they lose the next two games. It's I don't like this pattern. And we'll preview when we preview the Minnesota Twins, we're gonna bring this point up. But like there's a part of me that really wants to believe we could see some magic in Minneapolis this weekend. But after this series against Cleveland, I can't get too hyped about this White Sox team. It's good wins in games three and four, but what I saw in game one with Lance Lynn getting beat up and the decision-making from Tony the Russa Jim, I still feel like any momentum the White Sox try to build up can quickly be derailed in like the very next game, and it just throws the entire team out of whack uh, for a couple days before they can recover. You know, it's funny about Lance Lynn. We got that P.O. Sox question from our friend A.J. Mithin, uh, for our bonus PO socks, so our Patreon supporters got a chance to to hear our thoughts about Lance Lynn. And as far as that question, let me bring that question back now. Mm-hmm. Should we be worried about Lance Lynn? I'm still, you know, maintaining my answer, which I think it's just you know, Cueto had the super fast buildup middle of the season. I think Lynn just might be on the slower track. So as long as he's not needed to be like a number one or number two starter, the White Sox are fine. Uh, the one thing I will say though, is that we, you know, I, I think some fans and, and, and some readers get frustrated when the conversation always turns to Tony LaRusso when Lance Lynn was bad. Like, you know, it, part of it was bad luck, but he also only missed one bat, only got one swing and miss out of 39 pitches that first inning. So part of it is, you know, his lack of effectiveness or lack of power or just, um, you know, he usually gets the weak contact, but he also gets a few strikeouts here and there to, uh, you know, mitigate the effects of any kind of unlucky contact. Um, but, you know, I can see, you know, fans being like, you know, Lynn was terrible in the first inning. Uh, you know, why does the conversation always turn back to Tony LaRusa? And I think uh, the thing I would say about that is just, you know, I, I think if this White Sox team were performing 
as it was built to perform, which is you know, like a good one through five rotation and an offense that can post big numbers. It might not be the steadiest offense. They might not, you know, churn, you know, through opposing pitchers. Like a guy like Bieber might shut them down, but, you know, you know the, the third through fifth starters, they can, you know, hit three homers in a game and post numbers in a hurry. You know, I, I think that's the kind of team, you know, we were anticipating and the White Sox were anticipating when they built it. And so it shouldn't matter this much, but I think, you know, when you have an offense that's, you know, when it gets three runs or gets four runs, you really have to hold that line because the fifth and sixth runs maybe may take, you know, four to five to 12 innings to come by <laughs> just with the, how, how much uh, difficulty they have with quick strikes. You know, it, it becomes incumbent on La Russa to have to, you know, he probably feels overmanage his starters, like hold the hands of veteran starters. But, you know, I think that's just where the White Sox are right now is like, in terms of the rotation, Lynn is fine. They can carry him like they can, they can, you know, afford his stumbles, you know, to get back on track. If you have like his dud every five times out, like that's fine in theory. But when you have a team that struggles to score like more than four runs in a game, uh, it's, it, it hurts more than it should. And, and, you know, part of that is, you know, let's, the White Sox offense, we know that they, uh, you know, like we just saw Aloy Jimenez, you know, leave early again. <laughs> we know that, you know, some guys get hurt and some guys just, you know, haven't been able to perform over the course of a six-month season. So maybe, you know, we should have expected this and White Sox should have, uh, you know, built up more to help um, take some load off the rotation. But as it stands, you know, these innings, these, um, you know, these middle innings, these, uh, proactive pitching measures that maybe have a starter removed with his pitch count in the 80s because, uh, you know, the heart of the order is coming up and Graveman hasn't been used in two days. Like, those are the kind of decisions I think, you know, Larusa has to get comfortable making as long as the offense looks like this. Well, he just made it. He made it in yes. game four for Giolito. This is why well, it's frustrating because it's not consistent. Yeah, although I would say that he could have pulled – Giolito like a batter earlier like I didn't really once I you know once he got into trouble like I would have rather seen Lopez come in with one on rather than two on and, and mm-hmm. I thought that he could have pulled him earlier um, but he did have the bullpen warming at the right time you know he did have the right frame of mind and I think you know he was counting on uh, Nolan Jones like not punishing it kind of reminded me of the the Alex call bats against Cease like where you know Cease could face him because call what you know unless it's a miracle was not going to light him up for a homer like right. it was just he might get a single or he might draw a walk but like there wasn't going to be it, it didn't feel like there was going to be damage to that bat and with like, I guess with some of the swings that Jones took like maybe he thought that damage wasn't going to happen but still like yeah I maybe would have said a batter earlier but I would say that was neither proactive nor reactive it was just active yeah I I expressed my frustration after Monday's loss in the White Sox wake-up call. I'm just really tired of Tony continuing to go with this old-school philosophy that, well, Lance Lynn has earned it. No, he has not, (laughs) Mm -hmm. especially after that first inning. Moving forward for the rest of the season, if any of the White Sox starters give up three or more runs in the first inning, no, they do not deserve to get through the fifth inning so they can put themselves in position for the win. All right, if they get into trouble, that's fine. Go to your bullpen. You got through four innings. It's still a one-run game. Manage the game, not the season. Nobody deserves anything right now for this White Sox team. You got to manage it day by day, and it's a grind now. But that's where you are, and that's what the position that the White Sox have put themselves in. 
Again, still two games below 500. You mentioned Aloy Jimenez. Aloy Jimenez is hurt again. Now, the White Sox are saying it's leg tightness, and he is day-to-day. Aren't we all day-to-day? But it was a nice defensive play by Aloy as he made a nice running catch on a Jose Ramirez fly ball with a runner on third, so it did save a run. But it goes back to the comments that Rick Hahn made when somebody asked him about Aloy Jimenez being injury-prone. And the how defensive Rick Khan was at that moment, as he said, quote, that's just a moniker that, again, people try to besmirch a guy's ability with an unfair label to put on someone like that, whether they're just spouting stuff told by them to others or whatnot. It's unfair and inappropriate. I don't think it's unfair and inappropriate to say Aloy Jimenez is injury prone, Jim. Yeah, I mean, that was... That was weird at the time. Um, I, I will provide a counterpoint or at least, you know, additional context for this injury. The White Sox, uh, after the game, Tony La Russa said that he's optimistic and won't require an injured list stint and we'll see how he is tomorrow. But uh, James Fegan raised the, um, you know, raised one of Han's quotes during uh, Jimenez's rehab stint. And he said that, uh, you know, it could be the kind of thing that you're going to see Aloy at some point when he's playing for us, pull up a little bit, test out his leg and get comfortable. And okay, that's the feeling I'm accustomed to feeling from time to time, but it's not indicative of any sort of injury. It's something for the rest of the season that's probably going to occasionally feel a little odd to him. He just has to get more comfortable with. This isn't a major problem, but part of the process. So there is that. Um, but it's just, you know, it, 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 you know, given also the way he's playing, it brings to mind, you know, Grandal early, earlier the season, Yohan Makata earlier this season. Is he going to be another active rehab stint, mm-hmm. you know, for the bulk of the year where he's just trying to get his leg feeling right, but he's also hitting the low 200s and not with any kind of meaningful power. That's, I think, my concern. And, yeah, that's, you know, that, that quota just, um, well, it annoyed me, uh, the, the injury-prone thing, just because, like, you know, it's kind of like when he, you know, kind of uh, tisked his fans for, you know, it was whining about how you know fans were uh, upset that there wasn't a big contract and the money will be spent mm-hmm. and everything like that. Just you know, it's one of those things like you know he just gets mad that fans are paying attention sometimes. Like he just gets irritated that he can't you know BS people or or you know gets a follow up question and he just you know sticks in his craw and he you know doesn't have a way out of it. So he just kind of you know ups the condescension a little bit. Hey, Tony Russo does the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so just, you know, it, it, that's kind of, you know, you know, we're at. And so I just like bringing it up just to must be a lawyer thing. I don't want to offend her. We have many listeners that are lawyers. So yeah, I don't want to offend all of you. Lawyers. <laughs> I don't want to offend all of you, but that must be a lawyer thing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it just, you know, I think that's my concern more than, you know, oh, he's hurt again. Oh, you know, how are they, do we have to see how Tyler Nesloni's doing in AAA? And is he going to be the, uh, the the miracle in left field? But I think it's just, you know, that's my concern is just, is he going to be nursing this the whole year? And if so, does he need to play every day? Especially like when the games, yeah, I mean, the games really count now, but I mean, like as the magic number, tragic number comes into focus, like, is he going to be part of it or not? That's my concern. I mean, I think it's a legit concern. I I don't understand Han's quote where it's just something that he's going to have to deal with. I mean, it looks like that he's about to pull his hamstring again. Mm -hmm. And you're saying this is something that he's going to have to learn on how to manage with for the rest of the season. I mean, Rick, if you got runners on first and third and there's one out and he hits a dribbler in the infield and he's trying to run it out for that run to score at third base... Is that hamstring going to explode on him? 
Or does he have to manage that situation, hits into a double play, and the White Sox don't score that run, and maybe that decides the game for them, unfortunately, because Aloy's got to decide. Either my hamstring gets pulled again, and I'm out weeks, if not months, or I hit into a double play, and I'm healthy enough for future at-bats. Yeah, you likened it to Grandal because uh, they had the same procedure. But, you know, Grandal, like, whether he's running or not, you don't really notice just because right. he's slow. You know, he, he's not somebody, you know, he doesn't need speed to be part of his game. Like, you know, Jimenez needs to cover ground in left field. He needs to, uh, you know, he, he's not, you know, I would say like infield hits aren't part of his game, but he can run fast enough to, uh, you know, leg out the occasional hit or stretch a single into a double. Like he's not slow. It takes him a while to get up to top speed, but his top speed is okay. So he can occasionally make use of that. But if he can't, and he's also, you know, his timing's off and he's hitting balls on the ground or like fouling pitches, you know, four inches off the plate and getting into bad counts that make him defensive. Like, yeah, just that's not a very useful player. And this is where frustration as a fan or just somebody that watches the game, it's just not Aloy. It's also Andrew Vaughn. Like Andrew Vaughn's got some, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Leg soreness? Some type of ailment with his legs that prevents him from playing three straight days. Vague leg. Vague leg is what we're going to roll with. Okay, but now, so like Steve Stone on Twitter, and I think he's right. The only way to make sure that Aloy Jimenez does not get hurt is have him be a full-time DH. Well, Andrew Vaughn needs those DH at-bats as well because he gets vague leg after a couple of games and he can't play the third game. Both of these players should be in the physical prime of their lives, not just their career, their <laughs> human lives. They should be in the prime of shape they're in their mid-20s like this is the part where i just want to scream of like what's going on like and this is why loy's got to play left field jim even Mm -hmm. with his leg tightness or his vague leg injuries that he will have throughout the season because andrew vaughn's in the same boat and there's why is there so many white Sox players in this boat Yep. <laughs> it's a question we've been asking all season. Uh, you know, why can't anybody run to first base? Like my, my dad brought it up. Like he was watching the hockey playoffs after the Stanley cup. And we were talking like, yeah, I watched, you know, weeks of uh, playoffs and, and, and guys, you know, you know, skating, you know, hard as they can for 20 minutes a game, uh, you know, banging into each other, having to make abrupt stops, you know, getting, you know, knocked, you know, you know, not on their butts and, you know, they last weeks and weeks, you know, White Sox player runs down first base line and gets hurt. Like how, you know, what's the training imbalance here that, you know, where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some you know, other sports are so much better at absorbing unexpected contact and starting and stopping and White Sox, you know, just simple baseball actions result in players returning to the dugout, uh, you know, gingerly. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's a good, qu- a good like, question. Like I didn't have an answer for him. Just, Yeah. <laughs> It is a good question. I mean, again, they're in the prime shape of their careers. This is the time in their careers, and I'm hoping they all have 10-plus years in the majors, but this is when they're going to play more than 140, 150 games in their lives, right? When you're past age 30, it's tough to play that many games in a season. So if you're not doing it now in your mid-20s, it does raise the question, will you ever do it? Later on, mm-hmm. and with Deloitte, this is a question and topic that everyone's going to have to tackle in the offseason. Can you trust him? Can you trust Deloitte Jimenez to give you more than 125 games in 2023? You can't in 2022 again, and he couldn't do it last year. 
So hopefully we see him in Minneapolis, but there's also a part of me, Jim, that's like, listen, if you give him that series off, that's eight straight days. And honestly, you're not missing a whole lot with his bat at the moment. So I just say, give him eight days off and hopefully that fixes him or his legs feel fine enough that he could play four games in three days when the team comes back home to face Cleveland. Like, that's just how I feel about the Aloy situation right now. Yeah, now is the time for an injured list stint. Like with the, uh, uh, you know, Kansas City Royals, um, you know, having 10 of their players not be able to travel to uh, Toronto. Like Whit Merrifield's been dealing with a bone bruise and he's one of the players not, he's not going to Toronto. So all of a sudden, like he gets an eight day vacation. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't actually have to go on the injured list. You know, four of those days are unpaid, but just now is the, uh, now is the time if you're going to, you know, sit a guy uh, to put him on the, put him on the shelf and you get four of those days for free. Whit Merrifield, have fun in Toronto guys. I'll be watching from Cabo. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that situation. Just rebooked one of his flights. but. Yeah, I mean, well, the thing about Jimenez, too, is it makes it tough is, like, if you could say, like, he's only going to play 125 games, but they're going to be good games. That's one thing. That's like Larry Walker's career was like that, and he got to the Hall of Fame that way. I mean, you know, Walker was a different player. But I just mean, like, sometimes you can deal with a guy who's going to miss three or four weeks if they're good. But, you know, when Jimenez misses time, then it takes him a while for it to get his timing back. Like, he hasn't proven to come back from injury smoothly. So that's the other part is like, you know, he gets hurt. And then when he comes back, it's a five week process for him to get back up to speed. So now you're talking about 125 games, but in terms of effective games, are you down to 85? Mm-hmm. That's kind of what we're looking and, at. And the eight games that he has returned from injury, it's 30 at bats. He's five for 30. So that's a 167 batting average. He's got 12 strikeouts of two walks. Like that strikeout yeah. of walk rate is crazy. Uh, he has the one homer. He's got six RBIs. That's pretty good for an eight-game span. But his slash line is 167 with a 219 on base percentage and slugging 267. Aloy's not helping you. Like he made he made that mm-hmm. nice defensive play. He got hurt doing it, and he saved you a run. That was the benefit of Aloy Jimenez in this series for the White Sox. So again, I say if Thursday after the flight to Minneapolis. The trainers look at him and say he's a no-go. I say just give him the entire weekend off, given the four days of the All-Star break off. Maybe do put him on the injured list retroactive so he gets that Friday night off and he's available for your doubleheader on Saturday at home uh, against Cleveland. Like, that's just how I feel. Like, if he needs the time off, this is a good time to give it off for him. Yeah, it'd be great to have prime Aloy Jimenez in the lineup, but the White Sox don't have prime Aloy Jimenez at the moment, so just give him the next eight days off, and hopefully Andrew Vaughn could play some in the outfield, or A.J. Pollock is healthy enough to play in the outfield. The White Sox have options right now to play in the outfield uh, in Aloy's stead. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up next, we're going to play a little game called Pick a Door. We're going to have three topics. I'm going to have Jim pick a door of, and we're going to discuss one of these topics. And we'll also be previewing the White Sox next trip as they head to Minnesota. We'll preview that series after a quick word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, I'm going to try something new, and I'm hoping that you guys enjoy it as well. It might be torture for Jim. But we're going to play Pick a Door. I have picked three topics. And I'm going to have Jim pick door number one, door number two, or door number three. And we're going to talk about this particular topic. The three topics. Ozzy wants to fight John Heyman. White Sox minor league housing under the microscope. And the Toronto Blue Jays fired Charlie Mantoya. So you have door number one, door number two, and door number three. Those are the topics. Which of the doors do you want? Go with door number three. Door number three. The White Sox minor league housing under the microscope. All right. So James Feagan of The Athletic, I think, did a very good job of unveiling how some of the White Sox minor leaguers are feeling about their current housing arrangement. Now, as part of the CBA and part of the initiative for Major League Baseball as a CYA maneuver, because if you haven't been paying attention, uh, the Congress, the United States Congress is now really looking at the anti-exemption policies for Major League Baseball and bringing minor league baseball into focus. Now, some people will say this is a complete waste of time. However, with the NCAA and college athletics, we have... We have seen on how it's really dramatically changed as far as college athletics with the name imaging licensing that has been created. So college athletes can make money off of themselves. The NCAA, this quote unquote nonprofit, can continue making profit off of them. So Congress may be stepping in and looking at how Major League Baseball is treating minor leaguers. And what we have seen in 2022 is many teams, Jim, and trying to do the best that they can with the housing situation. Now, they don't have dormitories built. They haven't bought hotels yet and taken over hotels and given everyone housing situations. But many teams have been focusing on trying to improve the living situations for their minor leaguers. And it makes sense because it helps with player development. And I think in the story from James Vegan, he did a good job in getting where the White Sox think where they are with this process, that they've spent almost a million dollars in housing for their players over the four levels. And they are doing a much better job of what they were doing previously. 
However, White Sox minor leaguers are saying it's not good enough. And when we talk to players from other organizations, we have it way worse. So how do you feel right now after reading that story from James Vegan of the, of the Athletic and what you've known for years about the way that the White Sox minor leagues have worked, especially when it comes to player development and, and these things pay for White Sox minor leaguers and living situations? Do you think it's getting better or are you now even more concerned after reading this article? It's disappointing. Um I will say that with Kannapolis, I know they're building, you know, there's a lot of construction going on around the park in in the downtown Kannapolis area. So they said there are construction delays for that. So I can see with a new stadium, with new, you know, with with new buildings, you know, basically from the ground up, you're not even converting things, not having, you know, this is a, a brand new program. They had this grand idea in mind for really close living, basically right on the stadium. Uh, I can see a case where like you need to give them a little bit of forgiveness, like, treat it as a two-year thing, especially like, say, if it is a matter of construction delays in Kannapolis, you know, which is not, you know, it's not like teeming with hotel rooms, uh, you know, around the ballpark. It's pretty residential. There's a small downtown strip right nearby, but everything has to be built, you know, to actually have people live there in bulk. So that I get, you know, the extended stay, you know, I would say that there's nickel and diming on the fringes though. Like if you're going to put players up in a hotel room um, and, and not have within walking distance and not have it within like easy food distance. Like you have to be able to, you know, have alternate strategies for getting players to and from, uh, you know, having players being able to have meals or even like reheat meals that, uh, you know, maybe the nutritionists make or that they have ready at the ballpark, like send players home with food. Uh, you, know, you know, one of the quotes is that they've never seen so many athletes getting McDonald's on a regular basis. And, you know, we've, you know, I remember there was like a, was a Twitter or Tumblr account of just minor league players, like, you know, just raving about Chipotle because that represented like fine dining for uh, prospects. And, you know, that kind of reminded me of, of those days, like, you know, going backsliding into doing nothing for players. And uh, the other part that I think is, you know, I would like to know more about in terms of how other teams are dealing with it is the idea of, you know, roommates. Um, that was the other part that was like, this seems cheap or it seems um really up in their business to you know determine whether players are married or lying about being married so they don't have you know they can live with their partners significant others you know uh, rather than living with another player or forcing their significant others to live with roommates like that's that part like that struck me as cheap but also that's you know yeah it was a good story but i think you know this is a developing story learning how every team's doing this and that was one where uh you know they mentioned some teams were you know more generous than others when it came to living arrangements but i'd like to know what the median is for roommates um you know, you know sharing you know sharing a room sharing a uh, a, a living space a, a lodging so that's the one thing that you know struck me as like oh that's that's kind of nosy. Like when you're saying, you know, when players are talking about like feeling like they need to be forced to get married, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, my brother's in the Navy and, you know, some of the stories he tells of like people getting married at 19 before they go on deployment, because who knows what it's going to be like when they get back and just those seldom, you know, or not seldom and well, but you know, it's not a great recipe for starting off a marriage and things can get complicated when people are still, you know, maturing. And there's probably some overlap in terms of just where players are, you know, whether it's like, you know, um, enlisted in the military or playing minor league baseball, still the same like life stage, age, maturity level. Um, you know, just 
maybe some some lack of foresight of just knowing exactly how things are going to play out if you make this choice at this time. <laughs> I think like that's what that reminded me of. And if you're putting players in a situation where they feel like they need to get married, um, probably need to rethink that a little bit because that just that that strikes me as a little bit of um, either cheap or just yeah, kind of like infringing on privacy a little bit in a way that's unpleasant and in a way that could, you know, make players uncomfortable if they do have like, you know, if they, if they have a wife or they have like a, uh, you know, somebody they want to propose to, or even like, you know, maybe they don't want to get married and their partners don't want to get married and they just want to, you know, they, that's the way they want to ride it out. Like the uh, players should be allowed to do that and not have to like, you know, prove, you know, it's almost like, you know, like, uh, you know, trying to get married in a church or something like that. And, you know, having to talk to the priest or the rabbi or whoever, and just, you know, uh, you know, prove your love in order to have that ceremony go through. Like, that's what this feels like a little bit. And that's what that makes me uncomfortable. Here are my thoughts about this whole situation for the White Sox. You need to rapidly change, need to rapidly change because we're going to have the Major League Baseball draft on Sunday. And, you're going to draft these college players that are coming from these these big conferences now. Like the SEC, Florida, throwing $50 million into their baseball facilities. Florida, $50 million. Texas, $50 million. All these top college baseball programs are throwing tens of millions of dollars to not only improve their facilities and their labs as far as their hitting labs and their pitching labs to help with player development, but also living arrangements. So you have this college player from ages 18 to 21, let's say. Mm -hmm. They're playing college baseball in the SEC, best conference in America. They get drafted by the White Sox, and now they got a roommate in a crappy apartment in Kannapolis, North Carolina. Like, that is a huge step down. Huge step down. And it makes me wonder, Jim, if there are some players, if this continues to happen, if the White Sox just have this reputation where, man, you know, it's great to be drafted by the White Sox, but I've heard really bad things about how life is in the minor leagues in their system. Like, are they going to have regret? Are they going to give you a tough time signing with you? Or if they're a undrafted free agent, are they not going to want to sign with you and sign with another team because, Hey, their living arrangements are a lot better. Like this is kind of your reputation at stake with your player development. And, you know, we mm-hmm. talked about Alex call early, early in the show. We actually had Alex call on our podcast when we were still with Southside Sox. And something that's always stuck with me, because we were when we had the minor leaguers on in the past, we would ask them, you know, what are some of your favorite places you like to eat when you're on the road? And they all enjoyed going and playing road games more than home games because they got to sleep on a bed. Because when they're at home, they're putting six to eight guys in a one bedroom apartment and they are they're sleeping on air mattresses. Like these are supposed to be your future major leaguers and you're not taking care of them. And that line that you mentioned, Jim, like I've never seen so many athletes eat McDonald's. Luis Robert was eating a large Domino's pizza every day uh, when he was in the minor leagues. Like, what are we doing? White Sox? Like, this is why your player development sucks. It's like you guys, you don't even do the basics. You don't help out with living arrangements. So they're, you know, they, they don't have that stress at home. You're not feeding them well. Like, what's going on? Why are you not throwing enough cash at this? And they may say, well, 
you know, it, it may not be worth the money. Hello, what did I just say about the universities? They are throwing mm -hmm. tens of millions of dollars into their program, and that's going to be a yearly thing. There's no reason why an SEC school is spending more cash on their operations with their player development than the Chicago White Sox. Like, you are running out of excuses, White Sox. You need to step up and do a much better job, and I'm very thankful that James Vegan wrote this story and I feel for the minor leaguers. And yeah, they had to be anonymous with this, with these quotes because you know what? They're right. If they attach their name to those quotes, I am sure there'll be some type of retribution to them. And that's the sucky thing as well. And the White Sox may want to say publicly that, oh, we want this feedback. Like if they really feel like this, they should let us know. I, I, can't, say, I can't say for certain there won't be any retribution as far yeah. as in their development. And that's also sad. Yeah. I think the way I look at it is it's a, it's a good story. It's a valuable story. I think, you know, just the seismic shift in, in going from players on their own players, having to handle their lease to teams taking care of everything. I don't think it's going to be a seamless process. Some teams may handle it another, some teams may be in markets that make it easier to handle another. So I can see it being a multi-year process. I can see it having some some warts and and some 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 wrinkles to iron out and some over things you know oversights that look bad. Um, so you know, basically, I want to see you know it's not good, it's not encouraging, but I would say like you know if the White Sox really are kind of learning some of this through James's story because of the pressures on minor league players, uh, yeah, I don't trust them to you know to follow through on this hundred percent, but I could see a situation where it does take a couple of years to get everything right, just based on how much is changing and, and how much some markets are changing and, and the, the timetable in which things are possible. So, uh, you know, I, I'm curious to see, like, I'm looking forward to seeing how this is resolved. You know, if it is resolved, if, you know, if it does end up being a sore spot, I could see it. I could see the white Sox stepping up and saying like, yeah, we are slow to do it, or this happened, this happened, this happened, but by the end of 2024, we're going to be, or uh, end of 2023, we're going to be, you know, have everything ironed out. We're in these markets for, you know, the next decade plus. So we, you know, now we have it exactly how we want it. And I can see it being like, okay, understandable, reasonable, um, regrettable. Some of the mistakes made early, but at least they solved them. So let's see if they solve them. But they cannot use the excuse of, well, this is the journey to pro ball. No, yes. no, you cannot anymore. Not with how much money is being flushed into college baseball lately. This yep. is a huge drop off. You know what Chris Getz should do is that he should take a tour of the SEC schools. Like the next time you're in Birmingham, find your way to Tuscaloosa and go look at Alabama and learn from them and what they are doing because they attract the top talent in any sport, really across the country like there are lessons to be learned from the college side to really improve and if you can nail this part down then it makes it a lot easier in the recruiting efforts aka the major league baseball draft international signing you know periods uh, to attract the top talents because these kids have been recruited since they're 14 years old and this is what gets thrown at them are all these amenities and then they get drafted by a major league team. They get paid $400 a week to go play for the Canapolis Cannonballers. And they share a two bedroom apartment with two, with three other guys. And you don't even get your own bedroom. You got to share a bedroom. That's, 
that's not a great journey to pro baseball. And the White Sox definitely need to approve that. So I'm sorry, folks. We're not going to talk about Ozzy wanting to box John Heyman. I will say the one thing I'll say there is that any charity boxing event uh, sounds like a good idea until everybody's winded 30 seconds in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my take is this is why Ozzy Guillen is still not managing in Major League Baseball. And uh, we have another case study. Let's see how the Toronto Blue Jays fare after firing Charlie Mantoya. They won the first game without him. So let's see on how the Blue Jays fare. If they catch fire like the Phillies do, uh, then we're really going to wonder why the White Sox haven't let Tony La Russa go. I'll be writing about that uh, in the morning. So Excellent. One way or another, we'll be covering it. All right, excellent. So there you go. Something to look forward on SoxMachine.com while some of you are driving or flying to Minneapolis. And that's the next series for the Chicago White Sox as they face the Minnesota Twins. The Minnesota Twins have played 90 games so far this season. They are 49-41. and 41. They're still first place in the American League Central. They would be the number three seed in the American League postseason if the season were to end today, hosting the number six seed in that three-game playoff. In the last 10 games, the Twins are also stuck in neutral like the White Sox. They're 5-5. Five and five. But with Cleveland going three and seven and the White Sox going five and five, there's nothing to sweat about if you're the Minnesota Twins. They are still going to be in first place after this weekend in the American League Central going into the All-Star break. So things are looking good up in Minneapolis, and they just won their last game thanks to a three-run homer in the ninth inning off Josh Hader to walk off the Milwaukee Brewers. The season series, man, this is where the gut punch is. The White Sox are one and five against the Minnesota Twins. They have a chance to even it up if they can sweep, but your pitching probables for this series starts on Thursday night at 6.40 p.m. Central Time. It's Johnny Cueto for the White Sox against Sonny Gray. Friday night, 7.10 p.m. Central Time, Michael Kopech will be on the mound, and he'll be going up against lefty Devin Smeltzer for the Twins. Saturday, this is a big day for us because we have our pregame party at North Loop Galley that's going to start at 10.30 in the morning. Tickets are $30. Tickets are still available if you are changing your mind last minute and will be in Minneapolis for this series. And if you want to hang weather out with great. us. Weather looks great. Weather looks great for Saturday. Yeah, weather will look great. Uh, a very interesting matchup. Two struggling righties. It's Lance Lynn against Dylan Bundy. And then Sunday at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, Dylan Cease will make the last start before the All-Star break against to be announced for the Minnesota Twins. So let's talk about something happy here. We're going to be there, Jim. Mm -hmm. So I'll be there Friday night. So if you have Friday night tickets, I'll be in section 138 with our friends from the 108. Stop by and say hi. Uh, Jim will be there with us Saturday. And uh, what are you looking forward to most, Jim? I'll be coming in uh, during the game on Friday. So I'll probably be passing by Target Field as the game's going on. So I will text you. Uh, when I'm you know, all checked in and seeing what you guys are up to after the game. Uh, looking forward to, one, seeing Target Field. Like, looks nice on TV. Park I haven't been to can add it to the list. I think it'll be number 26 for me. Oh, wow. Uh, not among active stadiums. Like, a lot of them stadiums don't, you know, no longer exist. Mm -hmm. But uh, it'll be number 26 nevertheless. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, also, just, you know, the, the last year in Milwaukee was fun. Uh, so I'm looking forward to... Um, a different setting. This will be like a, you know, uh, there's the open tailgate. So we're getting it tested out in a bar setting. But the thing I like about Minneapolis so far is I looked uh, how to get from the hotel or sorry, from the airport to the hotel, easy train system, you know, going right to downtown. You looked at the map for places to eat and drink and walk around. Like 
you know, don't have to worry about a car. So basically it's like, it should be conducive to, um, you know, meeting up for the game, uh, going to the game, you know, making impromptu plans after the game. Like it, mm-hmm. that should be pretty simple. So I'm looking forward to whatever we end up doing. Cause I know the, the, the plans are kind of in flux. So we'll see, you know, how the day goes and, and before setting up evening plans, but a lot looks possible. It looks like a nice, uh, yeah, I haven't been, I went to Minneapolis once when I was a kid, but I don't really remember it that much. And I certainly wasn't drinking when I was 10. <laughs> so when it comes to just, you know, enjoying like bars and restaurants, like this will be uh, new to me. So yeah. looking forward to it. It's going to be a very fun time. So for all the White Sox fans that live in Minneapolis, we can't wait to see you guys. I know you are excited that we're coming up this weekend. And again, if you guys change your mind, it's only a six hour, six and a half hour trip by car from Chicago to Minneapolis. Uh, so if you decide to change your mind, be like, you know what? I am going to go. Make sure you do get your tickets on SoxMachine.com for our Saturday pregame party and make sure you get your tickets as well for the White Sox and Twins this weekend. For this series, analyzing this series, I am worried mm-hmm. about the first game, Jim. Sonny Gray is just one of those pitchers, which we just talked about on how the White Sox are still struggling against right-handed pitching that can completely shut down the White Sox offense. I'm expecting this to be a low-scoring game, but this could be one of those frustrating 3-1 to one losses because mm-hmm. Johnny Cueto goes six innings, gives up three runs. That's a good start, but the White Sox cannot figure out Sonny Gray. So that's the game I'm most worried about. I like their chances in the other three games. What are your initial thoughts looking at this four-game series? Well, I'm most concerned about the Dylan Bundy start because looking at his record against the White Sox, he's 5-0 with a 3.27 ERA, 47 strikeouts over 44 innings. Um, not a strikeout inning guy against any other team but the White Sox. So, um, But I will say, like when it comes to the White Sox having to get better, this is a good assortment of pitchers to prove or you know test their mettle to understand how far away they are from like beating ordinary pitchers like Sonny Gray is good, but you know, he's been limited this year due to injuries and such. So, uh, and he's not overpowering, so he can be beat. And with Johnny Cueto pitching against him, like that's a game you can take, um, you know, Devin Smeltzer, a lefty, you know, he's had a decent season for him, but you know, White Sox hit lefties. They should be able to fare pretty well against him. Dylan Bundy is, you know, mediocre against most teams. He's great against the White Sox, but eventually they need to make him look mediocre. So like, this is a good assortment of pitchers to understand exactly where the White Sox are. Uh, I guess the problem is we might not like what we see or what they show us, but uh, you know, we can't help that. So, you know, if we're just trying to understand how close the White Sox are to closing the gap and, and, you know, not necessarily stealing games, but just like winning games against ordinary righties who are worthy of a major league rotation spot on a regular basis. Like this is a good series to just watch them do it or see if they can. And it's going to be important that they do because the next time the white Sox face the Minnesota twins is September. They don't face the twins again until September 2nd. Who knows who's on either team, right? A lot's going to change even after this series. We're approaching the trade deadline on August 2nd. I am sure the Minnesota Twins are going to add. And are the White Sox still going to be five games back of the Twins? God forbid, are they still going to be below 500 in early September? Like, this is kind of your last opportunity here to put a dent in this deficit to the Twins until you see them in the very final month of the 2022 season. Thankfully, that season, uh, that series, I should say, the next time they face the Twins is at home. But 
they don't have many opportunities to to kind of punch the Minnesota Twins here, Jim, and get some games back after this weekend. Yeah, it, it's one of those where uh, a split will be both good and disappointing. Like, you know, if they got a split, like, sure, two out of four target field, like, yeah, you take that most times. Like, I would say, like, nine out of ten times, that's fine. But just, you know, the, the entire context of the season is treading water. And uh, one step forward, one step back, hitting 500 and then reeling a little bit. So that's where they are. So, you know, eventually they have to get out of that. And, you know, unfortunately, just, you know, with the way the schedule sets up right now, Cleveland, uh, Twins Cleveland, like just it, you, basically it's a back and forth, like splits just uh, burn two weeks off the calendar. And all of a sudden, you know, you need to make up the same amount of time, but the season's now shorter to do it. So uh, this is the fate the White Sox have uh, charted for themselves. And uh, they eventually have to have a series where they surprise in order to actually, you know, close that gap. Yeah, they can go three and one in this series and they are 46 and 46 at the All-Star break. I would feel a lot better. I would feel a lot better about the White Sox. They, they would gain two games in the Twins. Now they're only three games back of the Twins. A bad weekend, good weekend. All of a sudden, both teams are tied. But to go two and two in this series, to split it, and be 45 and 47, and still five games back of the Twins, I'm not going to feel great at the All-Star break. If they lose three out of four against the Twins, and they're like 44 and 48 at the all-star break and now there's seven games back of the twins. I'm going to be panicking if they get swept by the twins as I'm driving back to Chicago, getting ready for the MLB draft show that James Fox and I will be hosting on Twitter spaces and the white Sox are 43 and 49 at the all-star break. James and I are going to be talking about the types of players that we should be looking out for because the White Sox are going to have a top 10 pick in 2023. Yeah. Uh, This is an opportunity. Like, let's flip, like flip the table, spin the table around. And from a Minnesota twins perspective, this is your opportunity for a knockout punch. Like for the twins and they win three out of four or they sweep the White Sox here. This is an opportunity to to knock out one of your chief rivals in the division, knowing that you don't see him again until September. Yeah, it feels like, you know, I mentioned it in the the last show that eight games is my red line for just feeling like getting back in the division is a possibility. I will say, you know, you know we talked about the Braves and the Nationals in terms of, like, who Rick Hahn can point to, or even, like, the Twins now year after year, like, just saying, like, well, you know, disappointment now doesn't mean the season's a disaster or everything's over. You know, maybe now you just look at the Baltimore Orioles winning 10 in a row. Mm -hmm. Every team in the AL East is over 500. On one hand, like, the Orioles are closer to a wild card spot than the White Sox are. Like, the the Orioles are now in the way of the White Sox trying to get to the wild card spot. The Mariners have won 10 in a row. Uh, Like, a hot streak is possible. Like, you know, it's one thing that the Mariners do it because, you know, as you you were uh, bullish on them to start Mm -hmm. the season, they had some fans. The Orioles doing it is eye-opening. And it should, you know, it's not so much that, oh, the, you know, if the Orioles can do it, the White Sox can do it. It's more like if the Orioles can do it, why aren't the White Sox doing it? Maybe right. not 10 games in a row, but like, why not six out of seven? Why not 10 out of 13? You know, like, well, you know, where is that stretch? And if they can't do it against a division where, you know, like the, the Orioles 
are in a division where every team is over 500. It's uh, it's was it Lake Wobegon where you know every child is above average. Yep. Like that's the AL East. Like AL Central, you know the Twins are the only team over 500. So if they can't have that streak when facing, you know, a hefty you know heaving helping of of Detroit and Kansas City and the AL, AL East teams are off their calendar now. Um, you know the 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 top four teams in the AL East they're done with, like. With the calendar, you know, if they have the you know weakest schedule and they start still aren't able to have that kind of streak where like, okay, they're putting it together. Uh, twins have to sweat it out. You know, the the White Sox have won five in a row and the Twins have an injury and they're looking over their shoulders saying like, what if this is where it all falls apart? Like, you know, the Orioles and Mariners are showing like the White Sox should be able to do something like that if they are as good as they say they are. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, people want to keep pointing at the Atlanta Braves. The Atlanta Braves won 17 out of 20 games from like a July 31st to mid-August stretch. They finished the season 14 games above 500. So there you go. That's where they got above 500 was going 17 and three in a 20 game stretch. Baltimore is 20 and 27 on the road this season. They're 25 and 17 at home. That's how they're doing it. That's why they're above 500. They're 45 and 44. The White Sox are a good road team. They're 24 and 20 this year on the road. They're 19 to 25 at home and the way they play against Minnesota, the way that they're playing against Cleveland this season is wrecking their season. And here you go. You're facing the twins right now. They're in first place and you're hoping to survive where you're facing an opponent that is looking to knock you out. That's what this series is for the white Sox and twins. And hopefully the white Sox play with the higher sense of urgency in this series against Minneapolis and hopefully something generates a spark and they're able to win this series, win three out of four or God forbid, sweep the Minnesota twins. And then let's get hyped during the all-star break. But if this weekend gets bad and I mean really bad, then yeah, we're going to have some very difficult conversations during the all-star break. When we start uh, the podcast up again, uh, previewing the post all-star break with that four game series at home, against the Cleveland Guardians. And let's hopefully let's hope that we do not have those types of conversations in the next week. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, the midweek edition. Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, we cannot wait to see you in Minneapolis. What's funny, while we were recording, Jim, I just got a text message. Someone just bought a pregame party ticket because at the last minute they changed their mind and they drove up to Minneapolis tonight. Uh, so right. they'll be meeting us <laughs> on Saturday. So that's awesome. I just approved too. So yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So can't wait to see everyone. And if you can't make it, don't worry. We'll take pictures and videos to make you really jealous. Have a uh, high sense of FOMO as the cool kids would say, Uh, but don't worry. We'll have another road trip in 2023. The major league baseball schedule is supposed to be released in early August for next season. So we'll be planning as far as what our road trip destination will be next year uh, in a balanced schedule. So we've got options on where to go. Uh, But if you don't make it to Minneapolis, don't worry. We'll do this again next summer. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. If you just discovered us uh, or you've been a longtime lurker of Sox Machine, think about helping support us at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And I really want to thank all of our Patreon supporters because thanks to your continued support, during the lockout and during the spring, uh, it really helped us. And the Future Sox team has done a fantastic job 
previewing this upcoming Major League Baseball draft that will start Sunday night. As I mentioned, James Fox and I will be hosting a live Twitter space. We'll put the link in SoxMachine.com so everybody can listen to our live reactions of the White Sox draft picks as they come in. But thanks to your support, we're able to have all of this additional content and being able to cover as many possible prospects that the White Sox could draft at pick 26 or in the second or third rounds or even later this season. So thank you guys again for your continued support. And if you'd like to support us, you get exclusive content, ad-free versions of the podcast and website. And when we have new Sox Machine swag, you're the first ones to get it. Monthly plans start at $2 and you can save with an annual subscription. Sign up at patreon.com slash Machine. You can subscribe to the Sox Machine Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts such as Apple Music and Spotify. And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.